Amen. We've been looking in the last, um, oh, I guess four weeks of Advent and uh, also last year's Advent season at the exile that the nation of Israel is put into because she sins before a holy God. And uh, at Midway through this this year's Advent celebration, we began to see the Lord's prophets speaking of a message of hope that is a return from exile. Today, I thought it would be helpful to, as we transition from the season of Advent to the season of Christmas, to look at how exactly Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of all of the things that, that Israel had wanted, uh, and in that, how that informs our ability to trust the message of the gospel, that we have been saved by grace through faith, and that salvation being accomplished by Jesus Christ when he died for us on the cross, taking the sins, not just of the whole world, but of each one of us individually. Individually. And in that, in that place, why we can trust in faith that that message of the gospel is true. Because it is God's word, not man's word. And therefore, if God's word is to be trusted, we need a God who can be trusted. And that is the point of the season of Advent and, and therefore the point of our celebration tonight. We've read a few passages of scripture already in Luke 2, but we're actually going to, through tonight's uh, um, uh, sermon, which we'll keep brief, uh, we're going to look at some other passages, both in Luke 1 and, and the rest of Luke chapter 2. And these passages, although they don't seem like they're very christmas uh, e, I I submit to you that they are more Christmassy than the Christmas that is Santa and snow and sleigh bells. The Christmas, which is ultimately a biblical Christmas, is the message of fulfillment of covenant. And, and we're going to see how that is the, the foundation of our ability to believe and to trust in the gospel. So there's three things I want to look at in our reading today, as well as some other passages, which we'll read here in a minute. And those things are that God is sovereign. He has a sovereign hand by which God rules the earth, that, that uh, he orchestrates in, the, in this reading here a, a miraculous thing that takes place that you or I could never even hope to achieve or have that much influence, and God uses it to actually bring about his purposes. We're going to look at how Jesus Christ is the son of David. That is, he is the one who fulfills God's promise to David that we, we looked at this last Sunday, just a few days ago. And then finally, we're going to look at a promise keeper who is a promise maker. We're going to see how in every single promise that God uh, makes or God demonstrates as paid in full, I've fulfilled this, he then turns right around and makes another promise, even more great than the first promise. We're going to look at exactly how the scriptures demonstrate that and how that translates to having confidence that, that yes, we really can have peace through God, uh, peace with God through Jesus Christ. Christmas, if it is not the alleviation of a great tragedy and sin, is mere sentimentality. It's mere, it's mere, uh, celebration for the point of celebrating. But if Christmas, if you see Christmas as God's action to remove your sins through the coming of Jesus Christ, then that is a true gift. Many people today, they see the over-commercialization of Christmas and they say, bah humbug, we shouldn't even give gifts, not even if we're in the church. 
And I think that's ridiculous. The point is that God the Father gave you a gift in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And our gifts that we exchange, they're not just because we always do this. This isn't a dead tradition. We celebrate by giving gifts, by exchanging gifts, because we remember the great gift that the Father gave to the world. That is his son, Jesus. So that is why we celebrate Christmas. And in appreciating that, that God gave Jesus to the world, we have to see how God gave Jesus to the world by giving Jesus to Israel. And we're going to look at that. So God had promised through the prophet Micah that a ruler would come from the city of Bethlehem. We had talked about this last week, that David was given a promise by God. God said to David, you will never lack a man to sit on the throne. And that his throne, this particular king who would come after David, that kingdom would be established forever. We saw how that is a kingdom which cannot be fulfilled by a simple mere human. This human must be unlike any other human we've seen. If if someone is to reign forever, that means he will never die. And so God's promise to David requires, it necessitates a fulfillment that is more than what we would expect from a natural person. God demonstrates in this chapter his sovereign power by moving the heart of Caesar to desire to count the people of the world. And in that counting, he commands everyone to go back to the city that they came from. We see at the the first uh, passage that we read tonight, Joseph came from the city of Bethlehem and God wishes to uh, demonstrate his faithfulness by having Jesus be born in Bethlehem. So how does he do it? He doesn't just send Joseph a word. He doesn't just tell Joseph to go to Bethlehem. He uses his power over the heart of the king or the Caesar of the world at the time to desire to count all the peoples of the world. That is an amazing God. And that is why it says in verse 4 that Joseph went to Galilee. We see that the decree goes out from Caesar. And then a very interesting point is made in verse 2, that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, that doesn't sound very important to the story, but I think that Luke is intentionally recording details to say that this is no mere mythology. This is a true history. This is a history which can be verified and compared against the Roman histories which record Caesar taking a census. The the gospel writer is not making up a story. This is a recording of a historical narrative. And what that means is that Christianity is not a fable religion. Many, many people think that, oh, we're celebrating Christmas in the winter because back in the day, the Romans celebrated Mithras in the winter and the Egyptians celebrated Horus in the winter. That could not be further from the case. Jesus Christ has nothing to do with the Mithras cults or the cults that celebrated Horus. Jesus Christ was born at a particular time, and we choose to celebrate him in in the winter because it is the breaking in of light into the world. That's what we symbolize when we are lighting the candles, that after around December 23 to 25, depending on what year we're in in the, in the calendar, that that is the day in which darkness begins to increase all the more. So Luke here has given us a, a point in history in which the light of the world is coming into the world. And at that place, Luke goes on to record exactly why it happens. Jesus Christ is demonstrated by Luke as the promised ruler to come forth from the city of Bethlehem. In fact, uh, 
Jesus is described as a Nazarene by, by the fact that his father grew up in, Na- in Nazareth, uh, although his father was originally from Bethlehem. So in describing Jesus as the Nazarene and Jesus as the one who is the son of David or coming from Bethlehem, he records how that happens. God is not a magician. He works through ordinary means and ordinary ways, although it is supernatural to us. He causes Caesar to call for this census and thereby bringing the the family, Joseph and Mary, to the city of Bethlehem. Verse 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, the name of the city we normally recognize as Bethlehem, but here Luke says it's the city of David and it's called Bethlehem. He identifies, Luke identifies intentionally the promise that God had given that there would be a ruler coming from the city of David. And it's contrasted by the ruler, Caesar Augustus, wielding his authority to call for a census. God is demonstrating that there is a great exchange here. Though, if you were recording events that year, it would have appeared like Caesar's census was the most important thing. It actually is the case that the most important thing worldwide is a little child being born in an obscure city in Judea. That is an amazing idea, and that's why Luke records the the contrast of the ideas or the contrast of the events. So Christ is born in Bethlehem because David was born in Bethlehem. Not because it's the city that David built. It's called the city of Dayton, uh, Dayton, the city of Bethlehem. I love our city. I say it so often. The city of Bethlehem because that is the city from which David came, not the city which David established, which would be Jerusalem. Uh, He didn't build Jerusalem, but he established it. And so David is, he rightly is identified with the city. And so in Luke demonstrating God's faithfulness to bring up a ruler after David's uh, line or in David's city, he demonstrates and emphasizes that city's name and place as being of David. Just as David is taken from among the shepherds, that's his job before he is installed as king, so also shepherds come and surround the Christ child. And this is no mere coincidence. We've, We've been looking over the last probably three years that Jesus comes as the true shepherd to the nation of Israel, who originally Israel was all a bunch of shepherds. If you can remember back to Abraham and Jacob with his contest with Laban, it's all about shepherds. And so Jesus here is rightly surrounded by shepherds because he's the true shepherd coming to bring Israel out of darkness and into light. Some of the notions of Christmas that we celebrate today completely forget God's promises to Israel. They're basically like this. God sends Jesus Christ, and we know that Jesus Christ is God's son, and therefore we celebrate Christmas, right? Isn't that how it normally goes? If there's any semblance of Christianity, often God's promises to Israel are completely ignored. They're just they're just glossed over as if the entire epic of the Old Testament histories never really happened. It's just as if Christ's coming is a contextless event that Israel was in this darkness, how, how they got there, we don't know, and God sends in a rescuer and we should all immediately recognize him and listen to what he has to say and then believe him. That couldn't be further from the case. God establishes a nation whom he leads by the hand and guides 
uh, with cords of kindness, with boundaries that are set up to protect. And even in that place, they rebel against him. And he then sends them into exile and brings them out to judge her for a time, to judge Israel for a time, and then sends his very son. And that is what the coming of Christ in Christmas is about. It is about fulfilling promises made to the nation of Israel and the patriarchs. Crispus has been dispensationalized, to use a big word. It, it means just to, it's been, it's been kind of changed. Like everything before Christ doesn't matter. And just with the coming of Christ, we start to pay attention to the story. It's kind of like God is intending to wipe the slate clean after making a huge mess uh, that, that is the nation of Israel. That's not the case. Although Israel was guilty of rebellion, God is not leaving his end of the bargain unfulfilled. He is demonstrating himself as faithful. There's a severe problem with this. Understanding the coming of Christ first as, God, as the keeping of God's promises to Israel is the basis and foundation for believing the promises that the Son of God makes. The Son of God arrives on the scene and makes some amazing promises, which we see over and over again in the Gospels. And those promises are not to be believed just because Jesus said so. They're to be believed because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made in history. That is a very big difference. Although Jesus is God and therefore his word is authoritative, if someone just shows up on the scene without any context and declares himself to be God, why would you know not to believe him? Because he's probably a crazy person. But this person, Jesus Christ, shows up in a context at the right place, at the right time, with prophets describing detail, with angels attending, with prophecies being given to multiple people, uh, as we're going to look at here in a second. And there, there is a, a multitude of attestation. There is a, a, a huge number of witnesses who say, yes, this really is the Son of God. Listen to him. And that's why understanding Christmas, although it may not seem very Christmassy to do so, as connected to God's promises is so important. It's right to believe Jesus Christ because it's right to trust the Father because the Father has shown himself faithful. We're going to look at three different passages of Scripture. We're not going to look at the entire ones, but there are three songs at the beginning of the book of Luke, and I'm going to uh, tell you their Latin names. You don't need to know their Latin names. It's just, uh, if you're curious, uh, they have Latin names. But these three songs, which both, one of them is uh, before the day of Christmas, uh, and then... Um, Sorry, two of them are before the, the celebration of Christ's birth, and then one is after, which we uh, will look at next Sunday. Uh, these three songs demonstrate God's faithfulness in a particular way, and then after that, they expand. So God is basically, he's made a promise to Abraham that through you, all the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, they will be blessed. And then in, in us seeing that promise fulfilled, the prophet who is speaking then says, that promise is even greater. God has demonstrated faithfulness, but it's going to be even bigger, more wild than you could have ever imagined. That's going to happen in each of these songs, and if you pay attention closely to the detail, you'll see it. In the Magnificat, which is just the, the word that means I magnify, or Mary's uh, song to the Lord, Mary breaks out into this song. It's, it's kind of like an eruption of praise after hearing the angel Gabriel tell her that 
the, uh, that she is uh, going to, to be with child and also encountering Elizabeth and Elizabeth's uh, confirmation that the spirit moved within Elizabeth as well. Mary says at the beginning of the Magnificat, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my uh, God, my savior. This is Mary beginning to, to say, this is the God who we have always served. My God, the God that Mary had known growing up as, a, as an Israelite girl. In the very remembrance of the fulfillment of the past promised, there is a look to the future. Uh, this this is a magnification that Mary does in rejoicing in God, my Savior. She previously had recognized God as just the God of Israel, but then she begins to recognize God as God, her Savior. In the Benedictus that Zechariah uh, makes, after John the Baptist uh, is coming forth, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, who had a wife, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was too old to have a child, God declares through the, through the angel Gabriel that Elizabeth will have a son, and then this son comes about, and Zechariah offers up yet another praise and thanksgiving to God. He was a priest, and yet here we see Zechariah prophesying. He says at the beginning uh, of his Benedictus in Luke 1, 68 through 70, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's not a God without a context, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, that's an interesting idea. Christ hasn't gone to the cross yet. Uh, all that's been announced is that there's going to be this child named John who will go before the Lord. And, and already, Zechariah is saying that he has redeemed and visited his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This is just God doing a work of telling a promise. And Zechariah's faith is so full that he considers it in the past tense. God has visited. God has redeemed. And he has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, a horn of salvation, that sounds really weird. It just means a pillar or a big thing that you can take confidence in. A horn of salvation just simply means that God has raised up a fulfillment to, that he gave to, uh, of the promise that he gave to David. Verse 70, then uh, Zechariah connects it to the word. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. He's saying that God has fulfilled the promises to David through Jesus Christ's coming. Then Zechariah prophesies over John the Baptist. So he said that he's, God has fulfilled his end of the bargain, and now look, it expands. It gets much bigger. Zechariah is, is announcing that this promise that, that God has fulfilled, it's got a bigger scope and an application than, than we ever noticed. He's saying by the Holy Spirit that this salvation is going to come and touch all the earth. Verse 76 and 77, and you, child, he's speaking to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Isn't that what John the Baptist does? Later on, we see that in the Gospels. John it comes out, he comes out of the wilderness with a message saying, prepare the way of the Lord. So John also is, is in this mission. He's, verse 77, giving the knowledge of salvation to his people that is John the Baptist's relational people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, the forgiveness of their sins doesn't come from John, and Zechariah's prophecy has just a tiny little hint to what's about to happen, the forgiveness of their sins. 
Over and over again, Israel had been taught a, a system of rule keeping, a system of, of law keeping by which if they operated in faith, the Lord would atone for their sins. And those sins would be merely put off over and over again. A few times in the old covenant, God says, I will forgive you. I will re- remember your sins no more. But those are promises speaking of the future. Here, by the, the Holy Spirit, Zechariah is saying, John the Baptist is going to have a message of actual final forgiveness. It's no longer a postponement. It's no longer something done in faith, waiting for a future day where we could be right with God. It is saying a true forgiveness that comes. At the presentation of the temple, this is our third song that we're looking at. Luke here gives some details about Simeon and Simeon's life before Jesus is presented at the temple. Now, this is this happens after the, the Christmas story, but I want to show it to you just so that you see this is the pattern of God's promises. Simeon's praise to God, the nunc dimittis, Uh, which means now you are uh, dismissing me or now I can depart, remembers God's special promise and foretells of the future glory. In verse 29, uh, uh, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What was the word that he's referring to? Uh, Simeon had received by the Holy Spirit, Luke records, that there was a special promise that he was given that before he died, he would see the Christ in the flesh that he would see the Messiah incarnate. He says, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He he, uh, records Jesus being in the flesh as God's salvation being done. it's, It's here. His salvation is here. Verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, and then here's the expanding scope of the promise. This is Simeon prophesying by the Holy Spirit, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is the glory coming on Israel, which was promised beforehand. And through that glory coming to Israel, salvation is extended to the whole world. The promise made to Simeon has been fulfilled, and Simeon prophesies concerning a future glory and knowledge of salvation going to all the world, a larger promise than what God had just fulfilled. So the promise is kept, the promise is upheld, God performs the promise, and in doing that, by his spirit, prophets of old prophesy in even greater scope. Verse 34 and 35, Simeon is prophesying to Mary. He says uh, that, it says that Simeon blessed them, both Mary and Joseph, and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now, Mary did not know that at that point. That was a prophecy that Simeon was giving. It was a prophecy that was bigger. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. At this child, the proud and the haughty are brought down and the meek and the lowly are raised up. That's what Simeon means when he says, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's saying that Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to set the wrong things right. He is going to level the playing field. And though the details are veiled of exactly what this sword is, which are going, is going to pierce Mary's soul, Simeon gives her a tiny message about this, and I believe that he's clear in saying that the cause of Mary's heartbreak is the same cause which opens up the hearts of stone 
and allows them to become hearts of flesh, namely the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of her son, her precious child, which she had in her hands at the time. And this is the promise of Christmas, that Jesus Christ has come, God has fulfilled it, and yet there is a greater promise. Jesus Christ isn't going to just come and visit Israel. He's going to come and through his church visit the whole earth. Celebrating Christmas without connecting to the promises of God, the covenant promises of God, which he had made by the prophets, is not just a exercise in biblical gymnastics. It is spiritually damaging to not do so. And the reason it is spiritually damaging to not do so is that faith and trust are produced, they're the result of God fulfilling his past promises. When uh, Proverbs says that that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a word that's kept is a tree of life. A, A promise that is kept is a tree of life. This is what it means when God enters into humanity, that Jesus Christ, when he is born, perfectly God, perfectly man, fully divine and yet fully human, steps into our situation, our trouble, our peril, and from that place fulfills God's command. And not only that atones for our sins, that is a promise fulfilled unto a promise that is larger in scope than we could ever hope or imagine. It is specifically this sort of faith that the belief that God, uh, in the belief that God keeps his promises, which is the foundation for our belief in Christ and the promises he makes. Now, it may not, you may not know exactly what I'm talking about when I say the promises that Jesus Christ makes, but Jesus Christ makes amazing promises in the gospel, which we aren't going to detail fully, but I'm just going to highlight a few of them. And the reason you can trust them is because Yahweh has demonstrated his covenant faithfulness over millennia in the sending of his son, Jesus. When Jesus arrives on to the scene, he gathers a group of followers and he begins a mission of mercy in the nation of Israel. He goes around and he heals those who are sick. He uh, relieves those who are oppressed by spiritual oppressions. He, he binds up the brokenhearted, as we saw Isaiah prophesying. He opens up and proclaims liberty to those who are captive to the law trapped under, trying to perform it for their righteousness instead of believing God's promise. And Jesus says concerning the particular call that he makes at various times, he says, those who the Father gives to me, those who the Father gives to me, I will lose none of them. Why do you know that's true? How can you believe Jesus Christ when he says that? You know that's true because he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. You also know that Jesus Christ is true when he says to you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, take upon my burden. He he promises that he would give us comfort for our souls. He promises that there would be a spring of life, a wellspring of living water coming up from our midst if we would believe in him. Probably the greatest promise and the most precious to understand in the light of God keeping his promises to Israel, is that Jesus Christ, although coming to pay for our sins, he demonstrates mercy on the cross, pleading for us, saying, Father, forgive us, or Father, forgive them. But what he says, the promise that I think is most precious, the most welcoming is this. Jesus Christ says in the Gospels, if anyone would come to me, I would by no means cast them out. That's an amazing promise. 
That's an amazing promise because you and I, we do not always come to the Lord, nor do we feel like we are justified to come to the Lord. But he says, if you would but come, I won't cast you out. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how terribly you've fought with all of your family and getting ready for Christmas or tonight or, or the terrible things you've done in the past. If you would just but come to Jesus Christ and rest in him, he will not cast you out. That is an amazing promise. It's too amazing to believe unless you have a reason to do so. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask you, Lord, that you would give us confidence in the call of the gospel, that Jesus Christ really is extending mercy, and he really does mean it when he says he won't cast us out. We pray, Lord, that we would turn our hearts over to trusting Jesus instead of trusting ourselves. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season would be sweet and precious, no matter if we don't have jingle bells or snow or nice weather or nice trees. Lord, give us confidence and a precious celebration of your son coming, that we would be able to believe your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.